Today, we will be continuing in our series, The Servant King, and our passage is Mark 3, 20 through 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by, Be- by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, My name's Nate, if I haven't met you yet. Good to be with you this morning. So in 1941... There was a 56-day campaign where the Nazis dropped 700 tons of bombs on Great Britain. And in the midst of that, in August to September, on Wednesday evening, five Wednesdays in a row, C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor who used to be an atheist who became a Christian, gave five 15-minute lectures on Christianity. It actually was the basis for one of his well-known works, Mere Christianity. And during one of those broadcasts, he made the following statement. He said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. Well, I hope you've had a good cup of coffee this morning. That was a zinger to start, right? Um, Lewis puts before us what's often called the trilemma 
in other words, there's kind of three logical responses to Jesus. Either Jesus is Lord, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. And the gospel writer Mark, we've been in here for, you know, a number of weeks now, we're at the end of chapter 3, and we've seen Jesus proclaim this kingdom of God is at hand. Literally, God's kingdom is breaking in right in the midst and work of Jesus. We've seen Jesus teach with authority. We've seen Jesus claim to have the authority to forgive sins. We've seen Jesus say that he's Lord of the Sabbath. We've seen Jesus heal. And we come to this passage and we see the trilemma in action. We see these three responses by three separate groups to Jesus. And the question before us, both of the Christian and the non-Christian this morning, to you and I is simply this, who is Jesus? That's the question, the real simple question. And the question is, how will we answer? So, let me pray, and we'll get in. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior, amen. Well, the first of the three responses is in verses 20 and 21. It's his family. Look, look at what he said. Look, look at what happens here. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Isn't it interesting? Jesus' earthly family, after hearing about what Jesus has been doing, the intent of his mission, the veracity of it, hearing about Jesus healing, hearing about Jesus casting out demons, they come to him, and the actual last phrase literally means, Jesus has lost his mind. That's their assessment of how Jesus is doing, and who Jesus is, and where he is. And so they come to take him, to protect Jesus from himself. In short, the trilemma his own family says, Jesus, you're a lunatic. The, the, the second response is in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. You know, this is the respectable delegation that's come down from Jerusalem. This is the, the center of their religion. And you've got the scribes. They're the ones. They're the ones who are the ones who are taught in, about the oral law. They're the ones who, in one sense you could say, are the guardians of the faith. And notice what they say about Jesus. That he's possessed. Beasible. It's, it's something to be said of, of Satan himself. The prince of demons. What's interesting is that they don't actually deny that Jesus has been casting out demons. They don't deny that. Rather, they say the reason he's been able to is because he's in cahoots with the demonic forces of evil. 
This is a serious accusation. And look at how Jesus responds in verses 23 to 27. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus says, well, let's, let's talk about your logic. If what you say is true, that I'm demon-possessed, then there's no way that Satan can stand against himself because we're divided. It doesn't make any sense. That's not, that's not logical. But Jesus says there's another possibility. Here's what it is. What if there's someone here who's stronger than Satan? We all know what it's like. You, to be able to plunder anything, you have to be able to, to bind the person who's strong. And Jesus says, what if that's the case? In other words, if what you are seeing is in front of you, and I really am casting out demons, then one who is stronger than Satan is here. But Jesus continues, though, because in verse 30, it says that they've been telling that Jesus has an unclean spirit. And this is one of those sections that is perhaps one of the most alarming for many people of his day and even today, one of the most confusing. Because look at how Jesus responds in verses 28 and 29. He says, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an internal sin. What does Jesus mean by this? This is incredibly alarming. There's, in other words, Jesus is saying there's something you can do where you are not able to be forgiven. This has left many people with the conscience of what if, what if I've committed that sin? So what does Jesus mean here? What, what is Jesus saying here? And the context means everything, okay? William Lane, commentator, puts it this way of what the unpardonable sin is. It is the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' words and action. And Lane continues, he says, it's the failure to recognize Jesus as the bearer of God's spirit and the conqueror of Satan, that could be forgiven. But by saying the opposite, it means they have a defiant resistance to the Holy Spirit. And here's what that means. That means this morning, if you're sitting there and you're like, oh, man, what if I've committed the unpardonable sin and you are struck to the core? The very fact that your heart is soft the very fact that your heart is concerned that you may have done this reveals that your heart is not actually set against God's Spirit in that way. In other words, take comfort. 
But also notice, too, in the midst of all this, the unpardonable sin, notice what is pardonable. Everything else. Isn't that remarkable? Well, we've seen the first two reactions to Jesus by his own family and the scribes are not altogether too different, right? On the one hand, one, he's a lunatic, or two, he's demon-possessed. Let's ask for a moment, just why? Why are his family and why are the scribes responding this way? Why do they have such a strong response? Well, we'll think for a moment. The scribes of the day, they had a really good thing going. They had position, they had status, they knew the oral law, they knew the law. And Jesus shows up and he begins to say these things and do these things and all of a sudden, their world, what they know, is all of a sudden turned upside down. Jesus' very presence and what he's doing and what he's saying is messing with their lives. Think for a moment about Jesus' family. Can you imagine getting word back from someone that your son is out doing all these things? You begin to hear what he's been saying, and all of a sudden you realize your reputation and your family, and you're going, wait, what, what are people saying about what Jesus is doing? And all of a sudden their standing in the community has been affected. They love Jesus, they're deeply concerned, so they go after him to bring him in. In short, Jesus, by what he's doing and what he's saying, is messing with their lives. And that's really the question before each one of us today. Will you let Jesus, the Jesus of Mark, mess with your life? Some of you, perhaps you're exploring the Christian faith. Uh, there's probably two reactions I see pretty common today. The first is this, is to check the I'm spiritual but not religious box. And that's really where you kind of choose appealing bits of faith from other faiths. You kind of pick the ones you want. It's a smash and grab, you know? I like that, I like that, and then whatever's going to better your lot. But I want you to see something here. If you really take Jesus at face value, that's actually not possible. The things he says, the things he does, doesn't allow you to take a piece of him and then add another. He won't be compartmentalized. But the second thing I see quite often is to simply cast Jesus aside. Oftentimes, because he doesn't fit with our cultural moment. I remember a number of years ago, I was walking with, through a, a resource with a person exploring Christianity, and throughout the time, we'd meet probably every couple of weeks, and almost every time we met, they would ask the question about the sexual ethic of the scriptures. And I kept on passing on the question, and it wasn't because I didn't have an answer, but I wanted to get across the point, there's actually 
a more important first question. And that question being, who is Jesus? That that question actually is more important than the question you're asking. Not that your question is unimportant, but there's a order of questions here. And the reason why I would say that is because, for example, if you grew up in the Middle East, that's not your first question, the sexual ethic. The sexual ethic in the, in, in the ancient, or excuse me, in, in the Middle East is, actually the scriptures, we like what they say about that. In the Middle East, they'd have a problem with Jesus and forgiveness. But see, this is what we do. In our cultural moment, we put that as the highest authority. And there's a more important question. Because if Jesus is who he is, he will offend every culture at some point. So will you let Jesus mess with your life? And Christian, it can be easy to approach Jesus as someone who will help you with your life. Or sometimes it's easy to approach Jesus as, will you bring fulfillment to my life? But are we okay if he begins to mess with it? Are we perhaps guilty of compartmentalizing Jesus, nursing kind of pet sins over here, Areas of our lives that we know he doesn't approve of. Oftentimes, if we're honest, there are things that we tell him to not put his finger on. We say, this is off limits. Francis Schaeffer, who was either Anglican or Presbyterian minister, I don't, I don't know which one, but he would baptize infants that's what they do in the Anglican Presbyterian Church. And they, would, they have a book of church order. And so you would read through things as they would do it. And every time he did this, he would add something to the book of church order. He would ask the parents this. If God chooses to take this child, will you promise to not rail against God? And the air would go out of the room. But the point was made, right? To all of us. All of us have that. Will we allow God to put his finger on an area that we most want control of? But that's the problem. If Jesus is who he is, if, it's, if, if what he does and what he said is exactly who he is, he can't be compartmentalized. He cannot be a means to an end. And see, that's why Jesus' is family, that's why the religious leaders of the day responded the way they did. Because they took him at face value. But there is another response. It's in verses 31 to 35. Let's look at it. And his mother and his brothers came, and staying outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, 
who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In short, those who have heard Jesus' message about the kingdom and they've seen his power to heal, they've seen him cast out demons, and his response is authority to forgive sins, to rule the Sabbath, they respond by taking Jesus at face value and they say, He's Lord. And in response, they follow him and they obey him and they give themselves completely to him and his kingdom. And the distinguishing mark is obedience. That's the mark. And see, that's what Mark's gospel is pressing in on each one of us, if we'll hear it. As you watch him teach and heal and cast out demons, when you see the beauty of his life and the authority of his life, it's that question of will you obey him and give yourself completely to him and his kingdom? N.T. Wright puts it this way. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means this or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting, most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Mark in the gospel is trying to press in the midst of us walking in the shallowness between those things. He's trying to press in that we must go deeper. But you know what's incredible? What's incredible is, do you notice what Jesus calls those who actually follow him and obey him? He says, you're my mother and brother and sister. He says, you're family. And what's incredible is, do you notice who's outside? Jesus' earthly family. Listen, that was very offensive. Just as it'd be offensive today, right? but even more so then. And do you know what that's saying? That if you give yourself completely to him, you belong. And here's the thing. Don't you see this call to follow him, obey him for his sake, whatever the cost, he's actually not asking you to do anything he hasn't already done. Look for a moment at Hebrews 2. Speaking about Jesus, it says this. It was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. 
That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This passage right here reminds us that the entrance into Jesus' family is not our obedience. And that's a clear distinguishing mark. The entrance into the family is not our obedience. The entrance is Jesus' obedience. And that he was willing to suffer for you, to make you clean. And it says in this passage, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. You, you, me, just as we are. He's not ashamed to actually call us family. See, here's the distinguishing mark. You see, the gospel says this, there's nothing you can do to clean yourself up. There's nothing you can do to earn a spot in God's family. Jesus, the elder brother, has gone before us to make that possible. But here's the clincher. If you see what he's done, if you know him for who he is, then you can't just offer a part of your life, right? You can't, you can't compartmentalize him. You can't domesticate him. Jesus did not compartmentalize his life. He laid it all down. You see, the evidence that we actually understand the gospel, right? The evidence of that we actually understand what he's done and who he is is simply by saying, I will obey you and I will trust you no matter what you bring, no matter what you ask. So who is Jesus? If you're not a Christian, I say this quite often, but this is the most important question you will answer. Who is he? You know, it's interesting. His family in this moment thinks he's a lunatic. But later on, they will follow him. James, his eldest brother, will lose his life for Jesus. What will you do with him? Christian, if you've answered the question that Jesus is Lord, how is that being reflected in your life? What areas right now in your life is the Holy Spirit at work? lovingly calling you to come back and not compartmentalize, but to surrender. One last thing. It's interesting that Jesus, looking at this community of people who have given up all to follow him, he says this, look around. He says, here are my brothers and my mothers, and my sisters. In other words, he says those who follow him are now family. Look around a moment. Look around. It means this, if you're in Christ, it means we have the privilege 
of sharing each other's joys and sufferings. It means we get to walk one another, not as merely individuals, but as family. Not too long ago, I got a Slack message from one of our members who had gone through um, some physical suffering and had totally just laid them out for a week. And yet, it was this small community in their city group that came around them, helped with the kids, gave them meals for the whole week. And they just remarked, I have n- they had never in their entire life ever experienced care like that from a church. But see, that's the deal. If it's really true that we're family, brothers and sisters, then that's what we do. Because we actually are family. And you know what? Some people who look in our lives and look in on a community who follow this Jesus, the one who has this authority, they may say, those people are crazy. But there's also something compelling about that. Because when the world looks in and sees a community who follows Jesus and obeys Jesus no matter what comes, and when they love each other like family because they are, there's something that cannot be duplicated. There's something compelling about that. And it's not because, it's not because we're great. It's because of the one that we follow is. Let's pray. So Father, we pray now that you would heal our divided hearts. You would mend our divided wills so that we may with one voice offer all of who we are to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.